0: You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. So first, Ephesians 6, 1-3, and if you don't have a Bible, there should be some of the pewbacks around you. Uh, after each of the scripture readings, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. If you please respond by saying, thanks be to God. So Ephesians 6, 1-3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. And our Old Testament reading is going to be Proverbs 31. Okay, Proverbs 31, the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of of the, all the afflicted, give strong drink to the one who is perishing, and wine to those who in bitter to those in bitter distress. Let them f- drink and forget their poverty, and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. An excellent wife, who can find? With the fruits of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hand to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household. For all her household are clothed in scarlet. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So, Father, we come and we ask that you would teach us, God, that you would take up your word, that you would wield it faithfully in this room, and that you'd call all of us sons and fathers, mothers and daughters, sisters and brothers, that you'd call all of us to faithfulness, you'd call all of us to wisdom, you'd call all of us to fruitfulness, God, to hear your word, to trust your word, to love your word and to obey your word. In your name we pray, amen. Um, a key component of my own personal history is that my father died when I was 14 years old and I was an only child. Those two pieces together um, tell you uh, the difficulty, the challenge uh, that was faced by um, a woman named Wanda Brown, who was my mother. Um, The reason why that was particularly challenging is there are few individuals, few types of human beings um, that have a higher capacity for life-destroying folly than 15-year-old boys. Um, And when they turn 16, it only gets worse. Um, The capacity to now drive a very large metal thing very, very fast um, adds to the complications of the folly that is inherent in every 15-year-old boy. Um, I'm uh, told that it goes away completely by the time the boy turns 17. Um, But when they were 15, when I was 15, um, all of that folly was very, very much full of great and grand potential. Uh, My mom worked uh, multiple jobs. My mom um, labored away. Uh, My mom was wise. My mom sought counsel. My mom um, uh, did things to provide for me, to care for me. Um, to, to serve me, to see to it that I had um, good, strong male role models. Um, she just recruited uh, any man she thought um, I would need as um, a potential father in the town. Um, sh- she worked so, so hard. And, and there was never a question in my mind about the capacity of my mom um, to work. There was never a question in my mind about the um, the capacity of my mother to think, to be smart. She had a great sense of humor. She she was um, also, even looking back now, as a father um, of my own teenagers now, looking back and thinking, man, my mom was brilliant, <laughs> brilliant in ways that, that she could... Um, that she could camouflage really, really well in terms of just um, in, in terms of finding ways to care for me, finding ways to disciple me, finding ways um, to see to it uh, that I, I, I stayed at least, for the most part, out of trouble. Not, not because of my own self-control, but because of my mom's ways um, of always seeming to know exactly what I was up to and how to prevent it. Um, there is uh, a, a text in the Bible, um, Proverbs 31 in which for whatever reason, I found myself this week, um, as I'm talking to people saying, oh, what are you preaching this week? Proverbs 31. All of them would give this knowing like, oh, Proverbs 31. Um, there is a text in the Bible that calls for and describes um, very, very specifically the nature of everything that would be offensive in our culture. <laughs> um, to, to describe one, um, we'll get into some of these assumptions here in a minute, just to kind of highlight them. But, but the idea that there is an ideal man and a woman. <laughs> there is such a thing as a man or woman. To, to say that there is um, a, a way of living in the world or a kind of woman um, that a man should seek as he sets out uh, to pursue uh, marriage. Set to, to, to describe the nature of a woman that a woman should strive to be as she grows in maturity, to describe um, the, the call of a, a mom to, to, to warn her son about particular kinds of women. Um, this chapter is uh, has been um, for years a minefield, um, a, 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 a layered opportunity for people to take offense. So I want to talk to to, we're going to have kind of an elaborate introduction this morning. I told my wife, she asked, how's the sermon? And I said, it's weird. Um, and she said, oh no. Uh, so some of you should now be saying, oh no. But, but I want to take a second to address um, two groups of people in this room um, before we get into some of the assumptions underlying this chapter and then looking at what, what frankly is a, a relatively simple argument in the chapter itself. First, um, if you're here today and, and perhaps you're not a Christian Or you're a Christian who I would say has largely bought into um, the narrative in the world about the nature of men and women. In other words, there is no nature of men and women. Um, Or or to to think about even traditional roles um, or or, uh, perhaps the history of the relationship between husbands and wives. Um, and the nature of women themselves and how they're to relate to men, um, that, that when you hear this stuff, that the, that, that the knee-jerk, that the first response is to hear this as some sort of oppressive, patriarchal, wicked, and evil system. I, I want to ask you for just a second. If you, if you will take the next 45 minutes or so, um, optimistically, the next 45 minutes or so, And I want to ask you just to set aside for a moment that potential offense. And rather than finding all of the things to oppose in this message, I want you to consider for a second um, what I believe to be uh, that, that God has structured the world in such a way that's actually profoundly beautiful, that actually is profoundly liberating, that actually produces wise and joyful and delightful fruit, um, not just for you know, strong men who, who are um, getting all the benefits of some system that they've imposed on the world, but rather um, that, that, that all of us are designed by God to enjoy um, a certain kind of fruit that grows only in the garden of a, of a life that cuts with the grain of God's wisdom or how he's designed the world. And that this system, this design of the universe is not oppressive, but liberating. It's not joy-destroying, but it actually is the, the fount out of which real, tangible, joyful living can come. So, so I want you to just set aside, if you will, you can, in 45 minutes, you can be angry and offended and all those things. But, but right now, for 45 minutes, I want you to consider the words of Scripture, the world that the Scriptures de- um, de- describe for us, and ask yourself, could this world be beautiful and good? And, and this will be a scary question, could it be true? C- could this be actually how the world truly is? Second, um, there's a group of you in this room who, who are Christians and, and, and maybe you were raised in the church. It, in, in my experience, it tends to be people who are raised in the church um, and, and you particularly are a woman and, and, and you hear Proverbs 31 and you cringe. And you don't cringe because you don't think it's true. You don't cringe because you think the worldview of the scriptures is false and wicked and oppressive. But but rather you cringe because um, you've heard enough sermons or enough lectures or read enough books about Proverbs 31. um, And you've always heard Proverbs 31 is this unattainable standard. It's like this bar that God has set for you um, and this picture of kind of the ideal wife and you recognize in your own life that that's not who you are. You're not there yet. And so you hear a text like this and all you hear again and again and again, is kind of a narrative of your, of your own failures a narrative of how you haven't quite measured up, a narrative of how like you're not the ideal wife. Um, can, can I just plead with you for a moment? Um, that is a way of thinking about the scriptures um, that is rooted in law. It, it hears the word of God as a standard um, that, that you must measure up to in order to be accepted and loved. And so when you hear a text like Proverbs 31 and you realize that the picture here doesn't quite match up to the reality of your own life, what you feel like is that God has now rejected you. I want to plead with you to know, to to begin from a place of faith as you hear Proverbs 31. And what I mean by that is you begin from a place of trusting and believing that God has atoned for your sins, that God has redeemed you, he's rescued you, he's adopted you, and he has declared his love for you. Not on the basis of you meeting some standard of achievement. Not because you check enough boxes in Proverbs 31. But, but on the grounds, on the basis of the work of Jesus on your behalf. So, so that when you come to Proverbs 31, you come listening by faith. Not, not, not merely believing that these things are true. But believing that the God who speaks them already loves you. The God who speaks them has already atoned for all of your sins and failures. It's a God who speaks these words, that describes this picture, is holding out to you not a standard that you must uphold in order to be loved, but rather a a picture, a vision of what we should strain towards. Um, Not because we want to be loved, but because God has loved us. Because God is good and righteous and holy and worthy. What he's describing in these verses is actually beautiful and true and good. And the only soil that this kind of life can grow out of is the soil of the gospel. It's the soil of of a people who know, who confidently and joyfully know that Christ is our King, that Christ is our Lord, that Christ has dealt with our sins and that Christ is our brother now because we've been adopted by God. So, so those are my my two asks for you as you sit in this room um, before we step into this text. For those of you who are non-Christians, for those of maybe you who would call yourselves Christians or, or are Christians who who take offense to um, some, some of the, the fundamental understandings of of, of sex and gender that, that's implicit in this text, that I'm gonna don't worry, I'll, I'll make it explicit in just a second. Um, I wanna ask you to like set aside your offense for 45 minutes, now for 40 minutes. You only have to not be offended for the next 40 minutes and ask yourself the question, is this beautiful? Could it be beautiful? And therefore, could it be true? And then second, for those of you who have a a particular tendency to hear any command in Scripture, any description in Scripture like the one in Proverbs 31, to hear them as like legal demands um, or a ladder that must be climbed in order to be approved of by God. Um, I want to ask you to to set that aside. Actually, I'm going to ask you to repent of that. To repent of that and begin from a place of understanding the work of Jesus And hearing these words from a father who already loves you, who already delights in you, and wants his best for you. So, some assumptions in this text that we need to learn how to assume again. So I've got four of them. We're going to go fast through them. First, in this chapter, this chapter will not make sense to you at all unless you understand that there is a given thing, a thing that is not decided by your brain, or your feelings, or your desires, or your fears, or your experiences, but rather an objective, real thing called a man. It's a strange thought, and up until about seven minutes ago, it could be assumed everywhere, or almost everywhere. That there is a thing, a real thing, not determined by what you feel, not determined by what you think, not determined by your own desires or your own fears, um, not even determined by how you decide to dress or what hormones you're taking or what surgeries you've had performed, but rather there is an objective and real and tangible and objective thing called a woman. It's independent. What anybody else would say, this is um, kind of one of the the bedrock truths of Christian epistemology. There is a a nature to the world. The world exists. Men and women exist. Um, uh, There is a thing that exists in the universe that does not care what you feel about it. It doesn't change. God is there and he defines the world and he defines what a man is and what a woman is and he creates them by the word of his power and those things exist and do not ask your opinion of them or your feelings about them or your fears concerning them. They just are. You will not understand Proverbs 31 if you do not understand um, that men and women are not interchangeable you can't just switch. The definition of man or woman is not fixed by God Himself. If you don't begin at that place, and Proverbs thirty-one will be nonsense to you. Second assumption: there are differences between men and women. They go all the way down, and they're real. And they're so real, you can speak in generalities and not be a sexist. He say it again, there are fundamental differences, generally true, about men and women. Doesn't mean there's not exceptions. Just in general, you can say, this is true about women. Women tend to do this. And Men tend to do this. You can say that, you can say these things, and not be a sexist and not be lying. In other words, the Bible thinks of maleness and femaleness as being fundamentally, ontologically different things. Different ways of being and existing in the world. These are not merely cultural, they're not merely superficial they're not bugs, these differences between men and women. They are actually features. You use software development lingo. They're by design. God wants it that way. It's better because it's that way. In other words, those differences in, dis, in, um, in, in, in orientations, that those differences in particularly proclivities, those, those generalities should be embraced, laughed at often, but embraced and not immediately and sensitively taken offense at. Third, this is maybe the biggest one. The goal of all of human life, male and female, is to glorify God. But it's with a shared and cooperative end. But one of the things that makes the Bible hard to understand for us is that we've bought into kind of different versions of the same kind of autonomous individual lie and so maybe it's best form that it takes but it's still not true is that you as an individual exist to maximize your full potential as an individual human being or This is the most, I think, destructive version of this lie. You exist as an individual to maximize your personal satisfaction, pleasure, or well-being. And there are Christian versions of both of those. And there are secular versions of both of those. And they're all wrong. Got it? Let me explain this further. You know you've bought into one version of, of, the, of these lies when you find yourself, as you think about the goal of your home, the goal of your parenting, the goal of your marriage, in terms like the goal of my marriage, and this can be for the husband or for the wife, or for both, is for me to live up to my fullest potential for achievement in the world. To to advance as high as I can and be as successful as I can in my career. There's even like a weird servant leadership version of this where a husband says, the goal of my life is for my wife to reach her full potential as an individual using all of her gifts and whatever it is that she wants to do. Do you see how the foundation of that is a belief that the goal of a marriage, the goal of a family, the goal of raising kids is be all you can be? See that? That's wrong. May not feel real wrong right now. You're like, well, I want my kids to be the best they can be. Kind of. I mean, yes, but not like that. The, the, the worst version of that is, is that marriage, your investment in your children becomes disposable, dependent on your particular emotional satisfaction with those relationships. Even worse, you evaluate your own parenting of your children on the basis of their own emotional satisfaction with your parenting. Some of you parents do that. Holy cow, don't do that. The goal of human life is understood in the scripture. The goal of marriage is the glory of God. The goal of raising children is the glory of God. Um, The goal of a family is to glorify God. But, But not as individuals, but rather when God takes a man and a woman and he fits them together in marriage, this is, you won't understand the back half of Proverbs 31 apart from this. The idea is that together, the mixing of these differences, the complementing of these distinctions between a husband and a wife—that those two things coming together will produce a unique kind of fruitfulness in the world that is the glory of God. Does that make sense? In other words, it's not merely like, "Hey, two individuals we want you to come together in a marriage." So that you can be all that you can be and you can be the all that you can be and everybody's happy because everyone's going out and being all they can be individually. No, the idea is that a husband and a wife come together and as they come together in their union together, their life together, the mixing of the differences between men and women generally, but also the, the, the rather incredible differences that you find and discover when a, hu- when a specific husband marries a specific wife, People come to me often and say, I don't know if I can marry this woman. And I'm like, why? She says, just because we're so different. I laugh. There's no one more different than me in the universe than Jenny Brown. And it makes life so fun. Unless she makes broccoli. The idea is that these differences, all of this just ball of difference comes together. And the result is a magnification of strength and fruitfulness that wouldn't be possible otherwise. In other words, the goal, family, the goal of marriage, the goal of parenting, and by extension, the goal of the life of the church is that God takes all of these differences, places them in a covenantal structure called marriage causes it to be more fruitful, to explode fruitfulness. The obvious example of this is children. But it goes beyond children, as we'll see in the rest of Proverbs 31. Last assumption is that society and households can be structured in such a way that cut with the grain of this fundamental presupposition or cut against the grain of this fundamental presupposition. In other words, there'll be practical ramifications for how you structure your marriage, how you schedule things, how you spend your money, what you do on your dates, (laughs) how you raise your kids. There will be practical ramifications in terms of how things are actually structured, what you actually talk about, how you think about just week to week to week, how you think about your jobs, how you think about the economics of the household, that will either cut according to this grain, this, this way that I would say it is fundamental to the nature of the universe, or cut either against that grain or with that grain. And whether you, to the degree that you cut with this grain, there will be, doesn't mean life will be easy, but it means life will be more fruitful. To the degree that you cut against this grain, to that degree, you will find yourself sometimes even, not even understanding why, just constantly frustrated as you run up against the fact that God's made the world differently than you want it to be. Okay, so now, given those fundamental assumptions that are intrinsic In this text, what are we looking at? In Proverbs 31, we have a mother counseling her son. And so for you in this room who are mothers, you should listen to this text and hear something of the kind of counsel that you're first and foremost supposed to be giving your sons. But but secondly, like how you should be oriented towards your children. So as we listen to this mother speaking to her son, moms, that's your call. Some of you are sons in this room. As sons, you should listen to this text as God our, our, God, our father speaks to us through this mother. You should listen to her for counsel, for wisdom. Women in this room generally, you will hear in this, I think one of the most noble and beautiful descriptions of your purpose for existence in this world. Fruitfulness. And not just bearing children. That, that, that's not what I mean. I don't want to reduce it to that. But bearing a certain kind of fruit in the world. And so as you listen to this, I don't want you to hear this as a reduction of your calling and your vocation in the world, um, but rather um, for those of you in this room who are wives and those of you in this room who are mothers, um, and you could, you could dive all the way down into this thing. Um, for those of you, maybe in this room who are single, I, I want you to hear in this, and by extension, um, don't just say, well, this isn't for me because I'm not a wife. Um, this isn't for me because I'm not a mother. I want you to hear in this, uh, um, by extension, kind of the fruit or, or the, um, by um, extension through typology, um, a kind of life that God has called you to, at specifically as a woman in the world. And then men, There are general statements in here as a mom speaks to her son that you should hear. So let's just look at the fundamental shape of this argument and learn from it From what we can. And I'll try to like pause every few minutes and say, hey, mothers, do you hear this? Sons, do you hear this? Christians, men and women generally in this room, do you hear this? Verse two, I just have to read it. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? I bore you, nine months. What are you doing, son of my vows? If I wouldn't have married this man, I wouldn't be having to deal with you right now. Do you hear this text? Do you hear your mother in this text? Walking into your room, the teenage boy, what are you doing? That's where it begins. Don't you love it? It begins with a mom asking, what on earth are you doing? Son, that I had to carry around in my womb for nine months. What are you doing now? And here, my mother in it. So verse two begins by asking a question, but and it's a humorous question because I think we've all heard moms ask this question. Those are your moms, our moms in this room. You've probably asked... This question, um, but I think it actually holds out um, a kind of fundamental definition um, for, for what moms are supposed to do for their sons, and frankly, what moms are supposed to do for their kids. To stop and get them to ask at a larger level, like, "What are you actually doing?" And not not just what are you doing in this moment? What what particular need is being satisfied in this moment? What, what Boredom is being averted in this moment, but actually to get them to think about within larger categories, what is the purpose, the goal, the, the the end of what you're doing right now in this moment? Like one of the things that moms are supposed to do is ask the question like, hey, what are you doing? Not like right this second, but but... How does this second contribute to the thing that you, you said you want to be about? The, the thing that you said you want to do? I, I have found um, my wife. I have found my mom. I have found um, female friends to, to, to be consistently for me. Um, the people that ask the question like, hey, how does, how, how does this line up with the larger thing that you've set out to do? I think as men, one of the particular temptations we have is to, to get lost in the details of what's right in front of us. Whether it's just kind of squandering what's in front of us or, or just kind of getting bent out of shape over um, maybe something that's really important. And we need to be working on um, this, but to lose sight of um, how, are things, how do these things, these small things, these day-to-day realities fit into the larger scope of what we've said we want our lives to be about. And one of the most difficult gifts that God has given me in my marriage, one of the most difficult gifts um, that God can give you in your marriage or God can give you in the version of a mom is the gift of someone that will come and, 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 and seize with great, great amount of clarity the inconsistency between what you've said you want to be and do and what you're actually doing. so the question comes, a question that moms should be really, really good at. Hey, what are you doing? Now, you, should, you shouldn't do it with scorn. You should do it, well, maybe sometimes scorn. <laughs> what are you doing? And then there are two fundamental concerns that this mom tethers to her son warns her son about that he needs to be aware of what he's doing. The first, verse three, do not give your strength to women or your ways to those who destroy kings. There is a unique and predominant way in which women have the potential to destroy or to squander the strength of men. Try to say that and smile. Big, so say it. Another way to put that: there is a unique and particular temptation. It's general true most of the time enough that the Bible can state it this way in fact state it all over the place this way where men will squander their strength, waste their strength by giving it to women now notice what it does not say it does not say not to use your strength for women it says don't give your strength to women. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, as you work your way through Proverbs, you see that there's fundamentally three ways that the, that, the, that the Proverbs describe a man giving his strength or squandering his strength to women. The first and the loudest in the book of Proverbs is sexual sin. Um, the Uh, The Hebrew in Proverbs describes it as the strange woman or the alluring woman. There is, and I've seen this countless times over the last 20 years of my life in counseling lots and lots of, and observing lots and lots of men as a pastor. If you want to destroy your men, if you want to destroy absolutely destroy your capacity, your ability to lead, to initiate, to have conviction and to lead on the basis of those convictions and with courage, a marriage in a family or even just in a job and in a company fall into sexual sin. It's gotten to the point where if I meet a man and they begin to talk about struggles that they're having in their marriage, the way that they talk about the struggles they're having in their marriage, even if they disclose nothing about any particular sexual sin, I know they have a porn problem. And it generally has... Will come out in some form of, "You just don't understand my wife, she's impossible to lead." Now there are, are, are real wives and real women who are rebel against the leadership of men, who rebel against their husband's love and care and leadership. But man, if nine times out of ten, it's not really the wife. It's a husband's looking at porn. And he can't lead, and he feels frustrated by it. And he doesn't even know why he can't lead, because logically he can't draw the connection between, I, I'm, I'm plagued by a sense of guilt and shame over my own corruption, my own um, di- di- disloyalty to Jesus and disloyalty to my wife, um, and, and therefore I can't lead. And so um, rather than actually taking responsibility for that, um, he, he chalks it up to, blames um, a, a wife who just won't listen to him. you want to see your strength squandered, destroyed, your ability to lead absolutely thwarted, look at porn. Linger over sexual fantasies that are sinful. It will absolutely empty you of your strength. Second way that strength, the strength of a man is squandered, um, Squander towards women in particular, um, is the, the complaining woman or the demanding woman. Um, the way that this is described in Proverbs uh, and, and in other places in Scripture is a wife who wants all of the strength of her husband to be spent on her. In other words, it's not about an objective reality, objective goals. It's not about um, God has formed a team called the family and a marriage to, to glorify him in fruitfulness and in ways that would be impossible otherwise. Um, but rather, all of the strength of the husband should be centered not on God, not on a, a kind of objective fruitfulness in the world. It must be centered on her, her satisfaction, her pleasure, her joy, her fulfillment, um, her um, needs or desires being met. It comes out in a kind of complaining persistence um, that the Proverbs don't describe in flattering ways. And third, the foolish woman, the woman that just wants to run headlong into folly, into things that will destroy both her and her family will destroy her household. The Proverbs talk about um, the woman who um, can both build up her own household with her hands and destroy it um, through her own folly. So there is kind of foundational to um, the, the the fundamental, if you think about this as there's two basic warnings laid out for us in Proverbs 31 um, that a mother would give to her son. The first is um, that you should be aware of your strength being squandered on the wrong kind of woman. In other words, there's a particular temptation that, almost all men are going to be prone to, that all men are going to have to resist, and that particular temptation is a kind of disordered love towards the wrong kind of woman. And so mothers, your charge is to warn your sons from that particular temptation. Men, you should be aware of, this is... The way that one of the the Bible would say this is one of going to be one of your fundamental struggles is a temptation to um, a disordered love, disordered affections, and therefore a disordered life towards the wrong kind of woman. And third, maybe where the landmines are. Women Don't be one of these kind of women. Don't be a foolish woman. It's interesting kind of in our time and day, particularly in evangelical circles, to even admit that there's the possibility of there being such a thing as a foolish woman is almost anathema. Because if you say there's such a thing as a foolish woman, someone will hear you say all women are foolish. Which is exactly what a foolish woman would say. So, I call to you women, don't be a foolish woman. Don't be the strange woman, strange, sexually alluring woman who uses sexuality, maybe consciously or subconsciously, to destroy men. And don't be the kind of woman who requires that the world center around your husband, your children, your family, your life, center around you, your career, your emotional satisfaction. Don't be that kind of woman. Second warning. This is not for kings, Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink lest they drink and forget what has been decreed. So strong drink in Proverbs causes you to forget and specifically it causes you to forget God and what God has said in the world. And so what the author of Proverbs commands us to do is to not, um, that the, 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 the mother counsels her son to do is don't be given to strong drink. Don't be given, um, given to much wine. So it seems that one of the fundamental temptations for men are diversions like good scotch. Now I like good scotch. One of the temptations I have and that every man in this room has is diversions like good scotch or watching sports. I'm just going to pick stuff I like. You guys can find other things. Riding a motorcycle, watching a movie, Mom um, says, well, Jenny specifically says watching football. Since that's every, about every September, we have the same fight on about the third sept- Saturday of September. Like usually begins with, so you've been sitting here watching football for six hours. Are there any more games on today? Or There's a particular temptation that men have towards finding diversions that are, you can actually see a theme here, right? That squander men's strength. Strong drink being one of them, the the main one. And So mothers, one of your callings, one of the things you must, must, must do for your sons is to help them to know and to avoid the kinds of diversions that will destroy their fruitfulness. Now these things aren't, there's nothing wrong with wine. Wine is called all over scripture, a blessing, a gift. There's nothing wrong with watching a fair amount of football on Saturdays during college football season. There's nothing wrong inherently with these diversions. But the particular temptation is that these diversions would become a means by which a man fails to use his strength in fruitful ways in the world and for his family. So mothers, warn your sons of these diversions. Sons, and all men generally, be aware of the particular temptations of these diversions. Women, as you consider who to marry? Look for men who aren't easily diverted, who aren't given to strong drink. That should be a huge warning to you, and not merely because of a disease called alcoholism or addiction called alcoholism, um, but because like God's called the family to bear fruit that glorifies Him. And a man given to much drink, a man given to much diversion, will spend his life spinning the hamster wheel. And he will forget in the midst of those diversions what God has decreed, what God has said, what he's commanded, how he's described wisdom. So the basic concern laid out um, and these two warnings are that men are made to be strong and to be strong in order to fill the world, to work hard, to be fruitful. Um, uh, like we talked about a few weeks ago, that men are supposed to go to bed tired. Um, you should go to work with all of your might, using all of your strength to be fruitful. And moms, um, your job, your, your, one of your fundamental jobs is to raise sons who live that way who are asking the question regularly of your sons, what on earth are you doing? <laughs> Don't waste your strength in that direction. Don't waste your strength in that direction. Don't squander the strength that God has given you in order to be fruitful in this world. Be tired. So, so moms, one of, the, one of the other temptations I've seen, just among moms, is to baby your sons. To like, oh, you're so tired, or oh, your legs sore. Stop it celebrate when your son is exhausted. Make him more exhausted. If his legs hurt, you should learn the question, are you hurt or are you injured? If you're injured, we will go to the doctor. If you are hurt, go outside and get to work. Like learn that distinction. Um, like The goal, the, the purpose of a mom is not to coddle, but to encourage that strength to be used in fruitful ways in the world. So mothers, teach your sons not to squander their strength. Men, do not squander your strength. Um, women, look for men, value men, love men who use their strength in fruitful and exhausting ways in the world. Now, Now that the the mother gives a word of counsel, do this and find this. Now we have to hurry, even though this is the best part of the whole text. First, she says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. First thing she says is, men, son, use your strength to care for, to fight for justice. Son, make sure that your strength, your fruitfulness, um, is not merely being spent on yourself, but is actually a kind of fruit that can be shared by the community, a kind of fruit that blesses and cares for the city. Now, it's important to get clear on what justice is. We don't have a ton of time on this. We preached a whole sermon series last year on the nature of justice. But the fundamental problem that justice in the Bible seeks to address is that oftentimes the rich will use their wealth and use their power to silence the poor so that the law of God is unequally applied to the rich rather than to the poor. That's the fundamental kind of nature of the problem of justice in Scripture. That wealth is used, power is used to unequally apply the law of God. Justice in Scripture is when the law of God is equally applied to all. We have a whole history as a nation, and we have a history right now that continues in it to try to find creative ways of not applying the law of God equally to all people. Even anti-racism in our day is fundamentally an attempt... To be racist. But that's all I'm going to do there. So the first is use your strength, son, for justice. Make sure that those who don't have a voice, those who are being crushed, their rights are being defended. And then, second, find a wife that looks like this. What, what unfolds then, from verse ten to the very end of the chapter, is a description of um, what I would call the ideal wife, or the wife that um, uh, um, men in this room, sons in this room, single men in this room, um, this is the kind of wife you should seek. Um, for those of you who are women in this room, um, this is a picture of of what God has made you for. And this isn't, by any stretch of the imagination, this. Kind of picturesque 1950s stay at home with a doily and your beauty magazines and stare at your daisies, woman. And that's my picture of the prototypical 1950s woman. No, this is a picture of a woman who is industrious, who's got strong arms because she works hard, um, who is being fruitful. In other words, the goal sometimes um, in in some of the circles that we run in can often be to say that the goal is for a man to be fruitful, to use his strength to bear fruit, and a woman is there to kind of coddle the man. That's like who the man goes back to, When he's done being fruitful. That's not Proverbs 31. Now the goal is that together, a man and a woman are producing a kind of fruitfulness in the world together. Okay? Now we believe that there's a hierarchical structure in marriage. It's not a result of sin or the fall. A man should lead. He bears responsibility for his family. But we don't want to back off from that at all. But that leadership is not men should be fruitful and women should be comfortable. It is men should work, women should, everyone should be industrious. Everyone should be fruitful. Here in this description is a woman who is smart, who's brilliant, who's strategic, who understands the markets um, and how flax should be traded and what it's worth. Um, here is a woman who's strategic in knowing what land should be bought and what land shouldn't be bought, um, um, how the household should, contri- can, should, should continue to grow and to multiply and to, and to generate more fruitfulness, more wealth, um, more life. Here's a woman who is generous who uses the fruitfulness of the household to care for the poor, to care for the destitute, to show hospitality. (coughs) The the description here in Proverbs 31 is not a woman who individualistically is being all that she can be. The picture in Proverbs 31 is a woman who, I I would almost describe it as, I mean, I have, uh, Paul describes it as um, it Says that, that men are the glory of God and that women are the glory of a man, and that's that's often seen. We actually talked about this a few weeks ago as as a kind of a degradation. So it's like like God is the best and man is slightly less than God, and women are slightly less than men. That's it's not that how that that word glory works. The way that word glory works is glory is like the the public shining forth of goodness. So what that text from Corinthians describes is you have, the glory, you have the goodness of God, the wisdom of God, the fruitfulness of God. Um, and that fruitfulness, that wisdom, that goodness is meant to be, designed to be put forward and seen in the strength and the fruitfulness of men. So here's the glory of glory. But a woman is meant to take the best, most fruitful, most glorious parts of that glory and be the glory of the glory of the glory. Does that make sense? It's like the cream of the... Is it, I don't know how creaming milk works. I'm, I, I'm trying to use one of those metaphors that you don't understand. Like the cream of the cream, cream of the crop, the cream of the... Eat it. Like here's... Here's God creating man to show what he's like. And here's God creating woman to reveal the very best parts of what a man is to be. In other words, there, there is, as you look at Proverbs 31 and the design of what a wife is to be, she is to be a strength magnifier, a, fire, a strength multiplier. Um, uh, in, in wartime tactics, it's described as like a... Um, a a force multiplier. It's a kind of tactic or a kind of weapon or a kind of thing that, that takes um, the strength that's there and multiplies it, causes it to be more fruitful, more effective, um, better, at, um, um, better in the end at producing all of these things. I mean, in other words, the description of what a woman is to be, what a wife is to be, that, that the ideal wife described here is not of a passive, just kind of sitting over in the corner um, reading uh, Cosmopolitan and bouncing her foot on her knee. Um, It it is instead a woman who is strong and smart and industrious and fruitful in the world in such a way that um, um, the strength and the glory of her husband is magnified and multiplied and there's a kind of fruitfulness that grows out of the household that is magnificent, not despite the wife, but because of the wife. That in a marriage and a family, there comes out of it a kind of beauty and glory and fruitfulness and wealth and, and, and children and generosity that couldn't be there any other way. And the grounds of it is a woman who does not fear the days that are coming, is confident in the providence of God, the goodness of God. She is a woman. Fears the Lord, all of it growing out of this fundamental place. And so, mothers, raise sons who look for this kind of woman. Sons, men looking for a wife, look for this kind of woman. Husbands in this room, your leadership should be such that it cultivates or grows this kind of environment, this kind of culture in your home. And, Christians, women, see this not as a standard to be achieved so that you'll be loved, but rather as um, a calling, a noble and glorious and virtuous purpose and meaning for your life, given to you by God, to be marked by joy, by delight, and by pleasure. Last, I've gone a bit over, sorry. Um, the reality is, is that God has called all of us into this this project or this this meaning of what it is to be human, what it is to be man and woman in this world, to bear a kind of fruit, um, the fruit of children, the fruit of wealth, the fruit of culture, the fruit of beauty, the fruit of goodness in this world. And, and the reality is, is that all of us fail at it. And, and some of you in this room, you've tried as hard as you can, but I'm over now, so You're allowed to be angry, I said. Um, And and you hear all of this, and you just don't like it. Um, Or or some of you in this room, and all you hear in this again and again and again is you see the futility of your own life. Um, Whether that's because of sin, or because of um, difficulties, or because of particular circumstances. And you see all of it, and all you see is abject failure, or something you hate. And and, and so I would be remiss if I didn't place at the center of this, as which is at the center of everything in Scripture is that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross on behalf of us so that our sins, all of our sins, would be washed away. And so for those of you who are angry at this kind of description of the meaning of life, the purpose of life, what it means to be a man or a woman, I would plead with you to stop for a second and consider the mercy and the goodness of a God who will send his own son to die in your place. He's not out to get you. He invites you with joy to receive this grace. Know it's hard to trust him. To trust him and to receive from him wisdom, real wisdom as to how the world is. For those of you who have failed, who fail again and again and again, who feel the futility of your own sin, Jesus Christ died on behalf of your sins. Um, and not so that you could be perfect, but because you're not Not because you could do this well right now, because you'll fail at it. And so believe in Him, trust in Him, receive forgiveness from His hands, and then try again. I mean, this is why we end at this table every single week. We don't come to this table because we're worthy. We come to this table to again be reminded that God is good, he's kind, he's merciful. So all that he commands us, he commands us out of love. I'm to, to, to be reminded again and again and again, despite the failures of the last week or the last couple of hours, that God is gracious and kind and forgives our sins. So I want you to bow your heads with me as we pray, as we prepare for communion. And so, Father, we come again to this table. And in one of the most beautiful, not just metaphors, but realities in the universe, and we seek to go out from this place, blessed, cared for, loved, forgiven, and strengthened. Um, our obedience comes because you feed us, you nourish us, and you forgive us. And so God may this meal be for us in, in very, very real ways, our strength, our wisdom, um, and and a reminder that our God is good and that he loves us. In your name we pray, amen.